Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, super anti-hack knock grinder. I put a super before it, so it's really anti-hack. <laughs> On today's episode, uh, we will be discussing a super anti-cheat bypass in a really stupid game. Uh, but before that, we will cover two publications from our best friends over at CISA. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, game our way in. Let's uh, start this week with the first of two things that we're going to be covering from our good friends at CISA. Now, I guess before we dive into that, I just got back from, uh, what was it, TechFest in Manhattan, Kansas, where for the third time I had the opportunity and the pleasure of presenting alongside uh, Jeffrey Janista out of uh, CISA. He's mm -hmm. like the the global, what is he? Not the global. He is the regional cyber chief for CISA uh, out of Kansas City. Anyways, super intelligent dude. The like, I don't know, it's hard to describe his extremely dry yet amazing wit. Uh, so always happy to be in the great state of Kansas and uh, on a stage alongside him. But anyways personal tangent done. Let's dive into the first piece out of CISA, where just this last week, CISA, the FBI, the NSA, and then the national cyber authorities of Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, Germany, the Netherlands, and New Zealand published a joint guidance document that they titled Shifting the Balance of Cybersecurity and Risk, Principles and Approaches for Security by Design and by Default. And even just like on the face of it, my first thought was like, oh, man, this was really dang quick after that White Pillar House three, National three. Cybersecurity Strategy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so was that I have to wonder, was this like seeing or driving market forces? This may not be the regulation one that we talked about 3.3, but in 3, they're, they're just trying to influence the market to be more secure, I guess, right? Yeah, this is, it's not a like binding document. It's not like a standard. It's just, it is a voluntary document that basically urges manufacturers to take what they call urgent steps necessary to ship products that are first and foremost secure. And it also has like a good page and a half, two pages of guidance for customers on how to pick products that are secure by design and secure by default. Um, so non-binding, non-like standard, but just a, you know, we at all of these cybersecurity agencies around the world think that manufacturers and customers should be doing X, Y, Z. Um, so it points to like insecure technologies and critical systems that are leading to some pretty significant safety and economic prosperity risks. They point to like the healthcare market as an example, um, where, you know, organizations in, uh, or Devices you deploy in healthcare, if they've got security risks, I think it could be the difference between life or death. And obviously, CISA covers cybersecurity infrastructure across the board too. So very uh, important for them, I suppose. So it encourages manufacturers to prioritize what they say, the integration of product security as a critical prerequisite feature uh, to speed to market and other features. So basically... You know, as manufacturers, our goal is to put out working software quickly that our customers can use. And they're saying, you know, you need to just hold up and first and foremost, put out secure software and then worry about the features and how quickly you get to market. So like that makes sense conceptually there. And it's fully in line with pillar. What was it? 3.2, 3.3 from the uh, national cyber strategy and what we expect to see going forward for software manufacturers. Um, so the doc, it's broken up into two goals, basically. First one is secure by design. They describe that as technology products are built in a way that is that reasonably protect against malicious cyber actors successfully gaining access. And then secure by default. So secure configurations should be the default baseline. And the complexity of a security configuration should not be a customer problem. And I like this. This like this resonates. And... If I can put on my uh, red watch guard hat, like I feel like this is something that we do fairly well. Like we design our products to be simple, 
Like it's not complex to go make sure that your device is secure by default. And we've on the Firebox side put a lot of effort into it to make sure that the faults are secure. I, I would I would say simple with but with secure defaults as an option. I, I I know we're still the secure by the design part, not the secure default. But the 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 funny thing is simplicity, like to an end user customer. Simple is I plug it in, nothing happens to my network, everything's fine, everything passes, so I don't have to configure anything. And uh, the password is this well-known hard-coded thing, password that I can just eat or read and write, I can just type it in. And while we make our, our security features simple so you can't misunderstand configuring them badly, I will say, you know, just to be a devil's advocate that Secure by design sometimes means you have hardening features and capabilities on that actually means when you first turn on these products, you might cause some friction here and there. You know, you might change the way something works for a secure reason and uh, the admin might have to go change something. But I hear I hear what you're saying. I, I do think the document talks all over about how your security features should be simple and easy to understand and not to misconfigure. But uh I love secure by design, I love secure defaults, but it'd be interesting to see how the market reacts because usually the, the loosening or the non-secure by default things tend to be customer driven because uh, sometimes they don't want, you know, they just want things to plug in and work. And let's be honest, security controls are usually there to cause a few roadblocks on purpose. <laughs> Yeah, and to jump ahead, actually, like one of the things that they point out that I know you and I chatted offline about this that made a lot of sense is like as a manufacturer, we like to put out what we call like, you know, best practices or whatever guidance for our devices, like how to set it up securely. And sometimes or, or if you've set up a, a Windows be, server, you like a hardening yeah, guide. Is like the, are you talking guides. about hardening guides, yep. right? Yeah. So anyone that's set up any sort of server has seen the vendor probably release a hardening guide showing you how to change configuration to make the server stronger against external attacks. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. And so. Yeah, their guidance is to get rid of that and instead make the defaults as secure as possible and put out loosening guides for those that do want to, uh, you know, cut corners in the case of uh, usability over security, which I thought was yeah, an interesting concept. That. Yeah, and it does put like uh, they're putting more liability on the vendor to do the secure default, but that actually puts a little more work on the user, which I actually like, by the way, to accept you know, to for us to put out the most secure possibility and for them to accept the risk if they need to turn things off. So we'll get into, you'll get into the details soon of other parts of the guide, but a lot of the guide I think is 101 to people that have been following secure by design and secure by default. It's things that vendors should do, but definitely don't always do, but we know about them. But that loosening guide was new to me and I really loved the idea of flipping from releasing a kind of, easy, ready to go product that you have to harden the way you want to releasing a very hardened product and only providing a guide uh, that allows the customer to decide if they want to loosen it. And the other thing you can do there as a vendor is when you're providing the loosening details, you can also provide the impact. You know, it, it becomes really the, the customer's liability at that point because you've not we're not trying to make customers liable. But what I'm saying is you guys out there would have to make the decision by making this easier and turning this off. Here's the possible impacts that you are accepting by definition. Yeah, 100 percent. Anyways, I love um, I love so that part of it. That was new. To me, anyway. Yeah, agreed. Uh, one of the other sections they had in it, they proposed three software product security principles uh, that all manufacturers should follow. First being the burden of security should not fall solely on the customer, which is in line with the national cybersecurity strategy. And I think what like all of us vendors would like to do as well, too. Um, they had number two, embrace radical transparency and accountability. So they rah, rah. expand on this by saying, yeah, exactly. Uh, share information you learn from customer deployments, like uptake on strong authentication mechanisms by default, uh, which this is an interesting concept, basically saying, you know, here's the percentage of our customers that have enabled MFA as a way to encourage others to be aware of it potentially and also enable it themselves. Uh, By the way, can I brag that, for a second? Yeah. Uh, I, I think we do this a lot, and I kind of do. I, I definitely know I add this to our my parts of the ISR is 
I, I'm picking a specific topic, but we have free HTTPS decryption on our network security products. You don't even have to buy any extra security service to get it. And we find just about barely 20% of the people that report to us in the security alert, 20% of the fireboxes use it. So I think an example of this is in every report, we're like, hey guys, uh, not only do we think all malware and IPS attacks are happening over these encrypted connections and we have stats to prove it, but only 20% of you have enabled this, please go enable it. So I, that's the kind of sharing the kind of real customer metrics, the real metric being around 20% of people using it, but continuing to use that to talk about, you know, things you should turn on. Agreed. Uh, another sub piece of that was commit to vulnerability advisories and CVE records. And one thing they explicitly called out that I like too was they say avoid using CVE counts. It's like the volume of CVEs you put out as a negative metric because those I numbers are also a sign of a healthy code analysis and testing community. Basically, everyone has vulnerabilities. And what matters is how many you're able to identify and resolve. So a high number of CVEs doesn't mean you necessarily write buggy code. It means you've got good coverage of your testing. I, yeah, probably also analysis. ties to being the radically transparent too. You know, I might be concerned about the small Taiwanese company that hasn't published a CV ever. Uh, some people might assume, oh, no CVEs. They must be totally secure. <laughs> but it could be a completely immature IoT company that doesn't even know what a CVE is and has buggy off-the-shelf code. So yeah, I, I really Agreed. love them pointing out that uh, a, a high CV count for a software or hardware vendor doesn't necessarily mean good or bad. It's it's I, I think they're essentially agreeing it's not about the vulnerability; it's how they're handling it, and it probably shows yep. a very mature process. I would even say if you become a CNA, you're probably even more mature as a vendor. Not that I'm know, a man, marketing watchguard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the third principle they proposed is build organizational structure and leadership to achieve all of these goals. Basically, none of this will work unless you get buy-in from senior executives within the organization because they're the ones that are actually making the primary decisions. And executive level commitment uh, for software manufacturers is critical when it comes to these security designs. I will pause there for another devil's advocate that, you know, this is all going to come down to if customers do their part in this document, which is holding vendors accountable and actually adjusting their purchasing decisions for security. Because let's face it, the problem here, I, by the way, I'm, this is where I think security companies in general might do better. But if we're just talking all IoT, it's time to market and cost. This secure by design will definitely add cost to that vendor. The reason it's not done, in my opinion, it, or is probably threefold. Sometimes ignorance, a brand new hardware company that hasn't been internet connected, just starting with IoT devices. Two is time to market. It's a competitive. You want to get a product's features out first. And because security isn't a competitive feature yet, as demanded, or Really, honestly, consumers seem to care about price for cheap IoT more than securities. That's what I mean by it not being a competitive feature. People are willing to rush to market certain features really quickly with security as an afterthought. And, and then the final thing is doing it right will cost money. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It will take time, money, resource, ex and and I do think you need to have the leaders on board and I do think the customers have to do their part by voting with their wallet because the executives are not going to commit to this unless it you know, positively affects their revenue and EBITDA. Uh, I know I'm being kind of cynical, but the market is driven by money, earning profit and money. And uh, so I, lovely things that all should happen and I think are starting to happen because customers are realizing they take heavy losses if they don't make security a feature. That's why, you know, supply chain validation is becoming such a huge thing. But the key thing is to remember that when you buy cheap stuff out there, if you're buying cheap stuff, you're telling the businesses out there that you care more about it being cheap and being some neat feature, then you are telling them that they should be concerned with security. Because at the end of the day, I do think the business leaders have to worry about the, the financial health of their business too. 
So that that's not to, this is not to knock the document. It's just to point out the challenge the industry has, and that's why I think the customer guidance that we'll get to is equally important. Way to rain on the parade, Corey. Uh, I'm not raining on it. I'm, I'm like, uh, the, the secure by design is an old topic. So the pop pop Corey would say, why hasn't it happened yet? And it's because business is about money and profit. I mean, let's not try to, to make the world this happy dappy place where we're just all doing this because we love each other. I, I wish that were true. Let's get there. That's where the world should be. But uh, the reason we get cheap and secure devices is because they make money and people buy them. And people would rather have cheap and fast than secure and <laughs> you don't get breached. Yep, fair. Well, back on actual guidance from the document as well, too. Uh, so when it comes to security by design, they pointed to uh, NIST special publication 800-218, which is the secure software development framework, uh, which is pretty popular among software development organizations. They had a few like standout best practices that they pointed to, also noting this is not a exhaustive list. Things like using memory-safe programming languages, using secure software components from verified commercial or open-source developers, so know where your software comes from. Part of that is having a software bill of materials, so knowing what exactly is in your product or service. Um, using not just static, but also dynamic application security testing, so not just looking at potential vulnerabilities, but like actual fuzz testing, fuzzing as well too. And then having a vulnerability disclo disclosure program and CVE completeness basically making sure your CVEs are accurate to the root of the issue and not vague and ununderstandable by uh, your users. And I, I like the high level stuff they picked. Like you said, you know, secure coding and security design, secure design hardware is, is not a simple subject, has a lot of things, but really some of the things they picked were the top things and were, you know, kind of 101 secure coding things that you and I have recommended a million times. Other things like, you know, Make sure to use web frameworks that, you know, escape characters, blah, blah, blah. Uh, when it comes to secure by default, the recommendations were eliminate default passwords, which is like... Never heard that before. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, mandate multi-factor authentication. So don't just Love allow that. it, but require it where possible, especially for privileged accounts. Support single sign-on, because again, if users have to remember a crap load of accounts, they have a stronger chance of having poor password practices for them. Uh, secure logging practices, so support the ability for uh, your users to gain visibility into your products. Uh, one thing that stood out to me was forward-looking security over backwards compatibility. And this is something that really resonates with me too. Like I, speaking from experience, like there is always a, a concern when it comes to even something as basic as like updating the supported cipher suites on a web portal or something of oh, well, you know, if we remove this, then, you know, the half a percent of web users out there that still use Internet Explorer 9 won't be able to access it. And in their guidance here, they're basically saying, no, screw that. Like, be forward thinking about not just that basic thing, but like any security um, improvement you can make, even at the cost of potential backwards compatibility. And I'd like that as guidance. I, absolutely. I could take it even more directly to WatchGuard too, in that uh, we talked a little bit about Cyclops Blink a year ago, and we certainly had a, a, a decent vulnerability in our firmware uh, during that time, which is uh, obviously publicly disclosed at PCERT. But to fix that, we made a strong you know, security and signing change that meant when you upgraded that firmware, you can't go back. So I think that's kind of, and you know, that is kind of some, you know, if you, you think about that, that that's a risk. That's a customer, you know, some customers might like a certain older firmware. So being able to say, hey, no, we're saying that this is the way it's got to be now. We want this to be signed code. And once it's signed, you're not going to be able to use the unsigned versions anymore. Uh, I think that's a good example of forward-looking security at the, the stake of backward compatibility. And the last one was what we hit on earlier, track and reduce what they call hardening guides in size, and instead pivot towards loosening guides because now your product is secure by default. Yeah. So overall, good guidance on there, I thought. Um, they ended the report with guidance for customers as well, too. And it basically boils down to do whatever you can to hold manufacturers accountable. So they point out you should establish policies that require IT departments to assess the security of a manufacturer before purchasing and that executives should support this process as well. 
uh, organize a plan to adopt products that are secure by design and by default for all critical business functions, and then partner with your IT supplier and use that relationship to reinforce the importance of secure by design and by default in your purchasing as well, too, because they may be in a good position to recommend products that are uh, meet those categories. So again, this is all like, you know, non-binding, whatever, but I thought as just a, you know, hey, there's a problem and we as a industry have to try and fix this. It's good guidance. Like you said, Corey, put on the cynical hat for just a little bit. And if there's no teeth to this, and it is all about money, especially in a strange economic climate that we're in right now, who knows what will actually come of it, but at least the ball is rolling. No, I like the guidance. I, I, I would argue this is guidance that every company that cared about secure, every private industry knows about secure defaults and design has been recommending forever. Other than the, again, the loosening guide was a kind of a novel idea to me. So I like that. So it's not new. Uh, and, and honestly, I think most businesses that want to do the right thing actually want to do this. It really is about the cost. So I don't think I... I, I guess you could teeth this by making a regu it, it regulated and that will force customers to only be able to buy things that already have the cost of security built in. But I think the, the real way to fix this, you know, even though they give that consumer buyer guidance, they don't do the one plus one equals. Really, it means you probably have to go with products that are slightly higher priced. You can't buy this off the shelf really cheap switch instead you should Straight buy one from, from alibaba i exactly i i'm trying to avoid sharing names because there's sometimes names we even see in competitors these kind of weird tiny little consumer level firewalls uh but this box only cost me 50 dollars <laughs> and we're like yeah that's running off the shelf red hat and ip table there's nothing there uh so I, at the end of the day, it really comes down to you should be doing this, but are you and your companies willing to pay the slight premium to because it takes money to do this type of extra design, this extra testing, and the, this extra validation? I think it's well worth not only both our cost and time as vendors, but but I think it's well worth the slight increase in premium price that a customer pays, by the way, because. The difference is you do have a breach, which those tend to cost a lot of money, depending on how much PII you lose. So I think it's worth it, but uh, I, I really do believe it's a two-way street where the market has to demand it. You know, us security experts and the government can say it all day, unless the government regulates it or unless the market shows they're willing to pay because they care about it too, that's what will change. I think we're getting there, honestly, because... There's a few reasons that I think we're getting like, first off, cyber insurance, I feel like at some point is going to start having like it was one of our predictions of, you know, there will be a list of vendors that they know are secure by design and by default. Acceptable Maybe that vendor is the scenario list. That drives yeah. It. Yep. And then also just the fact that, you know, organizations don't want to get nailed because they're buying crap. And maybe now that cybersecurity is this big global discussion, like. Maybe there is that yeah. incentive or at least so, desire. Supply chain breaches, actually, I, I really wish the true reason security people like us, me and Mark, try to educate about security is we really are the people trying to tell you, don't touch the fire, you'll get burned. But the problem with human nature is, like, I know my dad told me don't do a lot of stuff, I would get hurt. And I still sometimes had to figure it out for myself and to get a little hurt in the process. So to your point, the reason I do think it's changing is unfortunately the supply chain breaches that have been successful have hurt customers. We're hoping people make behavior changes before they get hurt and they learn from others. But the true fact is there have been so many supply chain related issues or, or flaws that affected strong networks just because a particular product in the network wasn't secure, that that is what is driving buying changes. But it's too bad that humanity can't get there without everyone getting burned. It would be so much better if we could learn from each other. Unfortunately, I just don't think that is the case ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but maybe human psychology is burned. complex. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so let's see, moving on, I want to hit up the second uh, publication out of CISA uh, that we're going to discuss this week. So this one actually started back in August of 2021, uh, where they put out their uh, kind of draft or at least version 1.0 
guidance for adopting zero trust architecture and what they called the zero trust maturity model. Uh, basically I don't know, Mark. For... Are you are you actually qualified to talk about anything that's a maturity model? <laughs> Thank you. I made, literally made that same joke 15 minutes ago. <laughs> exactly. And everyone knows I'm probably the more immature. You, you'd never tell by looking at us that, uh, yeah. Hawaiian shirt Friday. Darn Pretty right. Good, Corey. All right. Anyways, so that original uh, maturity model was in response to Executive Order 14028, which I'm sure everyone remembers what that one was. Uh, it was... The title for that one was Improving Nation Cybersecurity, very bland and generic, but one of the major points out of it was that it required federal agencies and federal civilian agency branches to adopt a zero trust architecture uh, for their networks. And in order to allow that, they had NIST help create and revamp or standards and had CISA help develop these guidelines and guides on how to get there effectively. So. Back in August 2021, they released version 1.0 of their zero trust maturity model. Over the last year, year and a half now, they've been taking comments for improvements to it. And just last week, they released version 2.0 of this maturity model. So basically, it uses five pillars uh, in which organizations can make minor advancements over time to improve their optimization for a zero trust approach to security. And yes, it is explicitly defined for federal government branches. Uh, but the reality is like it is applicable to any organization out there, all of them. None of this is specific to a federal agency. Uh, there are five pillars they broke it out into are identity, devices, networks, applications and workloads, and data. And then each pillar has basically four levels that you can reach into it uh, from starting at traditional to initial to advanced to optimal, where in each of these, again, broken out into smaller categories, there's like little things that you can do uh, and take tiny little bites out of the zero trust deployment to ultimately reach a state where you are optimal across all five of those pillars. Um, underneath them, they've got what they call three cross-cutting capabilities. Uh, so visibility and analytics, automation and orchestration, and governance to kind of try and tie all these pillars together. And basically like at a super high level, when you're at the traditional level for zero trust adoption in one of these pillars, it's like you think like siloed and somewhat like half-baked solutions that are, you know, security for that specific use case. And once you reach the optimal level, it is everything works together in parallel. It's automated, dynamic all along the way. Um, so they point to the seven tenets of zero trust as outlined in NIST special publication 800-207. Uh, the seven tenets being all data sources and computing services are considered resources. All communication is secured regardless of the network location. Access to individual enterprise resources is granted on a per session basis. Access to resources is determined by dynamic policy. The enterprise monitors and measures the integrity uh, and security posture of all owned and associated assets. All resources, authentication, and authorization are dynamic and strictly enforced before access is allowed. And then the enterprise collects as much information about the current state of assets, network infrastructure, and communications, and uses it to uh, improve its security posture. Basically, like the purpose of this model is for you to be able to take the NIST publication and say, where are we at right now? And then identify those like small little improvements that you can start to make over time. I think, and I think this is necessary. Like zero trust is a big cookie to crack. And it can be overwhelming if you're just like, okay, we need to adopt zero trust. What do we do? So by, I think by the way, I, I, I think a lot of people don't even know what zero trust really is because there's so many vendors that sell products and say, this is zero trust. And there is no single product or even platform that can deliver zero. Zero trust is like a paradigm. It has aspects of governance and policy and just procedure, uh, uh, you know, choices that you make, not just the products that help support it. And and like this, this document po points out, you know, zero trust for network is very different than zero trust for identity is very 
different than what you have to do for zero trust for application. The concept is the same. The least privilege identity centric user only access is what they need. Consider every internal network compromised and designed that way. That is the same across the board. So that that simple high level concept is actually very different in execution depending on what aspect of of IT technology you're talking about. So I really do like the way NIST breaks this down. Uh, and, uh, you know, as much as we just throw out zero trust as a simple buzzword everyone understands, it it's, it's really goes well beyond just one product capability, let alone a hundred product capabilities. And so, yeah. Let's go over an document. example. Like, so <clears throat> at a high level, if we look at just identity, now this is broken out in the document into like an even more granular table than we're going to get into here. But for identity, if you were to grade yourself, like the traditional level for identity and adopting zero trust would be if you have some multi-factor authentication and access for access, you've got permitted access with like periodic reviews. So this user is allowed to access that. And then once a year we go through and see if we need to update that. And we've got some MFA all over the place. If you were to move to the initial level of a zero trust architecture, it would be multi-factor authentication everywhere. And access has an expiration date with automated reviews. Uh, advanced is phishing resistant MFA, and then a need slash session based uh, access for any given resource. And then optimal is continuous validation and risk analysis. So not just initial authentication, but like continuously watch what they're doing and then tailored as needed automated access. So you can see like, again, really high level, how that can kind of graduate. And again, they break this down into even more granular of like, even just for MFA, what do they mean by this? And what should you do to get from <clears throat> one level to the next in terms of your maturity? Without going in more detail, the, the highlights for the network one, it might start with this large perimeter that's a macro perimeter. Everyone remembers me and Mark talking about Tootsie Pops, hard on the outside, crunchy in the middle. But by the time you get the chewy optimal, you have... What kind of Tootsie Pop yeah, are you chewy, eating, man? Sorry. <laughs> that's a <laughs> lollipop a for Or a brain fart. That, that's that's uh, me getting Alzheimer's. Uh, but then if you pop all the way up the optimal, as you can imagine, it's distributed micro perimeters everywhere. So micro segmentation really in some ways. So for, for whether we're talking about a data applications, devices, or identity, Mark gave a, a great example of one, but definitely dig into the document there. It uh, it would like it applies to everyone, and you can you can start designing your own journey to zero trust using it. Yep, it's not going to tell you like do this next. The purpose is to grade where you're at, just see where you are with your levels on each of these pillars, and then take a look at what it would take to get to the next level for like any given component. And maybe you'll see some where it's like it's easy to do. Like oh, you know, we've already got partial MFA. Let's just finish rolling it out or let's go to phishing resistant MFA, or maybe I can get this one tool or service to take this other chunk out of a pillar. And if you do this slowly, incrementally over time, eventually you will reach a point where you have a zero trust architecture for your organization. Um, so I think it's a fantastic document. I'm waiting for it to make its way into CISA's, uh, what is it, cybersecurity evaluation tool, basically their desktop questionnaire app to make it pretty easy to do some of these questionnaires. Um, but uh, definitely a, an improvement and a cool tool to have. And again, designed for federal governments, but everyone should take a look at this because uh, it can apply to any organization whatsoever. Uh, so moving on to the last story, and this was a fun one uh, where uh, I guess I have to admit that sometimes I browse Reddit at work, but only work-related subreddits. And I stumbled across- Our MSP and our watch guard. Yeah, well, this one was r slash Or our sys, sysadmin is another cool one. Our sysadmin is literally just people complaining about being systems administrators. It's like true. Like 90% of the posts there. <laughs> <laughs> it is a, a forum of people that are just burned out, unfortunately. Um, but so r slash netsec had a pretty fun post recently called Hacking Play-to-Earn Blockchain Games, The Case of Monarium. Uh, so it was a security research article by Eduardo Alves and uh, Vitor Fernandez of Blaze Information Security, where they went over some security vulnerabilities they found in a blockchain play-to-earn game that's called Monarium. Uh, so I guess like before we continue, should pause for a second for uh, all the boomers out there that don't know what play-to-earn crypto games are, I guess. 
Uh, basically, it's a, a web-based game. I think like the old days of, well, this won't be applied to them, but like Neopets or like those old Flash games that you could play in your web browser, uh, where instead of just doing it for fun, by playing the game, you over time earn a blockchain token. So like a coin or something, or maybe a NFT of a, I don't know, a monkey, because aren't those all the rage these days? Uh, but basically by playing the game, you're earning these tokens. I'm a pretty bored ape. Yes, exactly. Uh, so in some cases, you earn those like directly over time based off points. In some cases, like in a Minarium, it's based off a leaderboard. Whoever the top 10 are after any given period, they're awarded a certain amount of these tokens. And the reason being that theoretically, uh, these tokens are worth something, worth money. I mean, in reality, they're worth absolutely nothing because it's cryptocurrency and NFTs are garbage. But they claim that, you know, if you play this game, you'll earn these tokens and then you can cash out for like real U.S. dollars at some point in time. Hey, can I try a shorter one sentence definite, you know, explanation for the boomers? Sure. It's a gambling Ponzi scheme targeted to video gamers, millennials and Gen Z. Yep. (laughs) Accurate. (laughs) Should have just started with that. So, uh. Uh, Minarium, as an example, which this research was focused on, uh, they here's a quote from their website. They say Minarium is a is the first play to earn gaming platform for gamers and developers based on the Binance <laughs> smart chain. Uh, How Minarium have uses, good marketing. <laughs> they use got to put play, the play to earn model. Yep, in each mini game to reward the best players with tokens. Is a place where game developers can launch their mini games and get the fee from the uh, daily prize pool. So right now it's got three mini games in it. Uh, there's one called Spiky Walls, which is literally a knockoff of Flappy Bird. Uh, there's one called To the Moon, where quote you launch your rocket as high into orbit as possible. And there's one. Does called it have a Dogecoin dog on the rocket? It feels Elon Most Musk likely. inspired, even though it's not. Yes. Uh, and then in the woods, which is, quote, calm monsters, don't let them get angry. So basically, you play these mini games. It's a platform so they can add more mini games in the future. And over time, you earn points. Those points are tallied up on a global leaderboard across the whole platform. And then every day, the top 10 users on that leaderboard are awarded some denomination of the token called ARI, A-R-I. Um, now you have to pay a tax of 300 ARI tokens in order to play each day. And then the winner gets somewhere around like 3000 all the way down to 10th through 12th place, get around 1000 or so. So you pay to play the game, try and earn high scores by playing flappy birds in your web browser. And if you happen to score in the top 10, you're awarded some more tokens, which I guess you can use to go keep playing or theoretically cash out for a couple of pennies or so. I don't know. Uh, So the researchers took a look at this and go, yep, that's BS. Let's go ahead and see how we can break this. Um, They did an analysis to figure out what the architecture of the game was. I'm sure it was really hard, right? Because all these cryptocurrency businesses have such really secure web coders and great secure design. So this, this must have been really hard for the researcher. They're literally- Let's find out. You should tell me. Flips. (laughs) Yeah. So anyways, so the game consists of a JavaScript based game that runs in the user's uh, web browser. So there's red flag number one right there. Uh, There's a game like API that they host on Firebase, which the game communicates with. Uh, There's a smart contract, which is a blockchain construction that allows the game admin to then award tokens on the blockchain. And then, of course, the user's crypto wallet that those tokens are distributed to, which they also use to authenticate into the game. Now, it gets a little in the weeds. You basically use your wallet to sign a random code to prove you're the owner of the wallet. That's how you log in. Start playing your game. Over time, your leaderboard ticks up. And if you're in the top 10, you get tokens into your wallet. Uh, so By the way, just, just to to kind of advertise and promote Blaze's post on this, it's going to be complex for Mark to describe the technical detail in an audio podcast but the, they do an excellent job of providing charts showing kind of when, when he's, Mark starts to talk about, uh, you know, 
how client versus server is being exploited. There's some really great charts. And even when they get into some of the more complex, uh, kind of the third issue they found, which we'll talk about later, they, there's great code samples that it will be hard to describe online, but check out the post. Very well-written post. I will do my best to describe it for our audio-only listeners, though. Uh, so the researchers, they focused, believe it or not, on the JavaScript-based game component, since it's all client-side. And anything under client-side means that the user has full control over what the heck happens in it. Uh, so during their analysis, they found a function that is called update account score. And it takes a few parameters, uh, three of which being the name of the game, so spiky walls, a wallet address, so the user's wallet, and a score. And what they found is they could just pop open the JavaScript console in their web browser's developer tools, call that function, uh, and set their current score for their wallet to an arbitrary number. Uh, they tested it, uh, set a score that was just a little bit higher than the legitimate first-placed wallet, so it didn't stand out like you know 500 bajillion uh, points. It was just slightly higher, so it looked somewhat legitimate. And they found at the end of the day, they were awarded the first, first place prize of 3,645 ARI tokens. Uh, so because they could call this function at will, they didn't even need to pay that initial 300 ARI tax as well, too. Basically, they could pop open their browser. By the way, call that's the, the, the gambling. That's the gambling thing I was alluding to in my definition. Correct. All these gamers are paying some money to play and only like the top 12 win anything. Or the top 10, really. Yep. I think the last two are kind of standby. So they uh, they reported this vulnerability uh, and Minarium resolved it. Uh, but unfortunately, they did not resolve it well. Uh, so when they analyzed the fix, the researchers found that uh, the API continues to communicate with Firebase, but now it's authenticated. So you need credentials to log in to the uh, Firebase account, gain a JSON web token, and then use that web token to submit your update score call. I was just going to say, that's got to be pretty hard, though, Mark. That's a good fix. I'm sure they had secure credentials that were hard to find and, and really long password that certainly wasn't anywhere a client could access. Of course not. Um, <laughs> of course not. The reality is the email and password to authenticate to the API were, of course, hard-coded into the JavaScript and easily viewed both by inspecting the web request and by analyzing the data blob that gets retrieved from the service with all these details in it. And of course, it's global. So you find this, you're able as the attacker to authenticate, and then again, update your score to whatever the heck you want. I get that. That's a strategy, I guess. Put the password right in the thing that uh, you're sending to the client that shouldn't have the password. In plain text. Yep. Yeah. Of Make sure it's the same for everyone so that they never have to look at it again. I'm starting to see a trend here that folks that jump on the uh, crypto exploitation bandwagon aren't necessarily the best at secure software development. I, I think we need to send them CISA's uh, secure design document. That'll help them out a little. <laughs> God. Anyways, uh, so they reported this one to Minarium. They resolved it as well. But yet again, it was able to be circumvented. Uh, so the third iteration still depends on the client submitting its score to their service, uh, but it added a anti-cheat mechanism, which like conceptually, it's actually kind of interesting how they did this. You can see what they were thinking. So wait, I knew, did, did, uh, before we go, just to add more, sorry, I'm trying to remember the word I'm scrolling. It was not just any anti-cheat system. Was uh, it like super a super anti-cheat? <laughs> there we go. It's a super <laughs> one. You'll never yes. breach that super one, Mark. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Spoiler, they did. Um, so this new uh, mechanism, along with like the score update, stuff like that, uh, it also includes a few other parameters in the request. Uh, so first off, the IP address of the user, the current timestamp at the time of the request, and then a amount of time in seconds that that gaming session took. And so the game service then, it knows about how long it should take for a user to earn any given amount of points. Like 10 points should take like a couple of minutes. And so if they send a request saying they got 10 points in one second, well, the service knows, okay, that's not possible. And it'll ban the IP address. Uh, so the researchers ended up writing their own script that used like a sleep within the code and some random numbers to effectively generate a high score in a timed human capable time frame, and then submit it to the service. So they actually, they it was kind of clever how the researchers did this. They designed the script to mimic a player that would go in, 
see if they're not the highest score anymore, play for an hour until they are the highest score again, and then pause for a little bit. So it's not like they're constantly submitting a new one. It's like mimicking actual human behavior of, oh, crap, I'm not in first anymore. Play, 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 submitting slow score increments over time. Now I'm first and I'll stop. Um, so it sends these periodic updates and increments with like a realistic session time length along the way. And in general, it allowed them to finish somewhere in the top three or so every leaderboard. Again, without ever actually playing, it's all just JavaScript based because at the end of the day, this game is trusting the stuff that you pass from the client side to it, which is like security lesson number one when it comes to secure web app development and game design. Do not trust user supplied values. Um, so they reported this to Monarium, which they resolved. And this time they resolved it, at least like obfuscated it in a way where there is not a number four workaround quite yet, but there will be. Um, so now all of these uh, requests to and from the web service from the client are cryptographically signed uh, using a public and private key pair. Now that said, in order for the game, the JavaScript code to be able to cryptographically sign its request that it sends to the service, that private key has to be somewhere accessible to the JavaScript in the game data. And so the researchers, they had published this, they hadn't got to the point of digging and finding that key yet, uh, but they ended with the, they ended their research post with, um, quote, as you can see, the body of all these requests is signed with the private key. If we try to decode this body, a non-human readable message will result. This is probably inside the game. Future research will focus on searching for this key and attempting again a new bypass. Because really, realistically, that key is in there somewhere. It's probably obfuscated, maybe like encrypted or something, or coded, encoded somewhere. But they're going to be no, able and to these find folks, it and then they, 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 their encryption probably starts with base sixty four. I think it, it's probably going to take three more rounds with them and uh, the researchers. That, encryption. Yeah, or base sixty four first, then then it'll be rot thirteen, and then maybe finally they'll get to a real cipher. So Sorry, there's like I'm two lessons ass. to take away from this. <laughs> I just don't like uh, Ponzi scheme, crypto card game, or cryptocurrency and NFT games. Period. So it's hard for me to have any any sympathy for <laughs> their creators. I've got two takeaways from this. So the first one is, if you are a web app game developer, uh, do not trust anything that the client sends, and develop your game to do most of the important stuff server side. I like what you just said with do not, because I was going to add to the comment you said before the 101 is is do not trust user. And I think every, people know that, developers know that, but I think while well, all security experts will know what I'm about to say, I think developers sometimes forget that what they consider user input includes client input. Like a normal user your browser headers, all this little stuff your client, your web browser has in the background, isn't stuff a normal user sees. And a normal user doesn't think that of something they can change in input. And developers are probably thinking, oh, well, anytime I'm asking a user for information, I'm doing a lot of enumeration, sanitation, and length checking. But they forget that all that client-based stuff too is technically user input. Any smart person for this JavaScript hack, people pop open burp proxies or even the, the development mode in Chrome, and suddenly you can tweak all this data because it really is user input. It's just user input that your client is taking care of for you. So I think on the development side of things, they forget that when we say, you know, sanitize, don't trust user input, that that means anything coming from the client because smart hackers and users can manipulate every aspect of the packet coming from their, their side of the communication. So subtle, uh, probably a very subtle thing, probably something security people automatically know whenever we are talking about user input, we are including everything coming from the client. But I wonder sometimes if that's why developers seem to forget you know, they're pretty good at sanitizing zip code or social security entries to to really make sure that it really is that information. They're less good at sanitizing any of the headers that their web app might be looking at from the client in, in returns or, or other things that are just manipulatable by anyone that can pop open a web proxy. Yep. And then takeaway number two is if you are a gamer, just 
stay the hell away from play to earn games because these are literally <laughs> a Ponzi scheme and a scam. And how is playing Flappy Birds for a million hours a day to earn a useless coin even fun? Like I whatever. I, judge. I shouldn't be so quick to judge, but this is so stupid. Just the whole thing I, is stupid. I think so. <laughs> I, I cannot wait for the cryptocurrency ecosystem. But someone's making money think... from it, so someone's buying their someone's buying what they're selling. If you do the math, the amount of these Ari coins that they're taking in as the tax and then that they're paying out as the prize, there's a pretty big difference in there. And so they're just like getting all these in. Yeah. It's, it's so dumb. Whatever. That's everyone can have their own vices. Uh this is dumb. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the next research article where they find the next five workarounds for this, assuming the game even lasts that long. You never know. For every 20 of these that totally flop, there is always one that somehow creates. Yeah, it's dumb. It shouldn't happen. But I think that's why everyone releases 10 bazillion different coins is because one does make money for a while. The people that started it, the top of the Ponzi scheme, make a bill billion dollars. And everyone that got in a month late, uh, they pay a billion dollars. The ones at the top of the Ponzi scheme change the logo of the social media website they just purchased, cash out, and then call it good. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> or then move mess. on to starting the next coin that they can get on top of and then get celebrities to pitch for the next year before they sell out on that too. Thank God the SEC is starting to crack down on that garbage too. Uh, man, you see, you have this hopeful view of humanity in the future, and I just keep seeing this stuff and getting disappointed. I, I still think it's one like one percent. That that's my thing, though. I agree. I am disappointed and sickened by it. And we talk about human nature, but for every one idiot that is purposely getting rich knowingly doing this kind of thing 99 people are against it and once they get past the being ignorant of what's really happening they do rally against this and i think that's what's happening everyone was loving and buying cryptocurrency but i think now the world is seeing uh, you know by the way, digital currency might be a good thing if backed by a trustworthy institute one day, but cryptocurrency has become a Ponzi scheme, has become a false stock market Ponzi scheme, Man. regardless of how good Waiting the technology that, uh, that supported is good. Waiting for that regulatory ban hammer to come swinging down from the SEC any day now. Yeah, hope so. Whatever. Check in next week and see what the current state of cryptocurrency is as Mark continues to be on his soapbox. <laughs> hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, I should really get on Mastodon more often because I'm this close to getting rid of Twitter. But until then, you can find both of us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore or is it, is it called it Twitter? Uh, I thought it was Titter for a while. It might be called Dogecoin. But what was the other now, one? Right? Uh, yeah, X app. Uh, wh whatever it will be named tomorrow, that's where you can find us. Tomorrow it will be named Bankruptcy. Uh, <laughs> you can also find the both of us at hashtag the 443 podcast. And yes, we record this bit live every episode. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. <laughs>